Anyway, okay, so this morning we are embarking on chapter seven. However, before we proceed, customarily, we review the central points of every other chapter, starting from chapter one till here. Now, just an FYI, after when RCRG comes and speaks next week, I am not going to review these because we're now approaching midpoint. So we're not, I'm not going to review all the points again uh, because we're going to start again to review um, because it gets a little lengthy. So if you want the central points in one little, the nice little Word document, I could send it to you, just email me and I'll just shoot it over for you. But we are now embarking in chapter seven and let's review chap the other chapter central points. So chapter one, chapter one, what is the central point of chapter one? Chapter one is this, we are declared as holy, righteous and redeemed in Jesus. Officially, that's the foundation of this entire book. We are declared holy, righteous and redeemed in Jesus. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, and through us believing in that, in him, we are holy, righteous, and redeemed. Chapter 2. What's the chapter 2 central point? Well, Jesus and his cross turns karma upside down. Karma says, and apparently karma operates in this universe, is that you get what you deserve. Or you get what you deserve because you didn't do something. In other words, Carmen says you cannot possibly do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff you've done. That's karma. But then Jesus' cross, his death and resurrection, turns that upside down. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to get what you deserve. You're not going to get the death and the death, which is the punishment of sin. What's that? That's mercy. So Jesus' cross offers us mercy. But he gives us holy, holiness, redemption, salvation, eternal life. And what is that? Grace. He's giving us stuff that we don't deserve. Karma goes, that's foolish. And so in chapter 2, we always heard the word, that's foolishness. Because why? Because no, karma, the world says, no, you reap what you sow. What are you talking about? But Jesus says, no, you don't reap what you sow. Through my death and resurrection, you are offered and given what you don't deserve, but taken away what you do deserve. All right? That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, central point. What is that? That's the question of what are we building? What are we building? If Jesus is our foundation and Jesus is the center and Lord of our lives, what does this building look like that is built on the foundation of Jesus, out of Jesus' mindset, and resembles Jesus? What is that that would last through the fiery furnace? Disciples of Jesus. Remember, that we call the precious stones that he says, if you, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, well, those things are actually used to build a temple. But what does Paul say? You are the temple. You're the temple now. So who are the precious stones? Us, disciples of Jesus. What lasts through the furnace then that doesn't get burnt up? Us. So what are we supposed to make then? Disciples of Jesus. Chapter four, we are called to imitate Jesus, but since Jesus is not physically here, but by his spirit, who should our role models be? Well, the Corinthians thought, no, that should be the superheroes, right? That should be Iron Man. Remember that clip? Right? That should be Iron Man. That should be like uh, somebody that I look up to, success, right? Successful, lots of money, lots of charisma and character. No. Paul says, no, that's not your role model. The role model is the one who actually imitates Jesus. Our role model, and I challenged everyone that day to look for a role model that imitates Jesus. Jesus, who imitates Jesus, who has a mindset of Jesus, but not just the mind, the, also the heart, right? So that's chapter four. Chapter five, Pastor Fritz, 
went through that chapter, and that central, that's the central point of that was this. If God is pure and holy, he calls us to be pure and holy. He has laid out a life for us to follow in Jesus and through those role models that he has given us. So ultimately, it is whether we choose Jesus or ourselves. Now, remember the point of what Pastor Fritz said? Like, it, was, it, it seems like it sometimes appears to be a lot of do's and don'ts, right? A lot of do's and don'ts, a lot of lifestyle choices that just constrict us. But remember this. this we go to chapter 6. In chapter 6, who is really ultimately our owner of our bodies? Jesus. Because he paid a great price. So therefore, just like an Airbnb, I, I gave an example of an Airbnb. Like uh, whenever you go to an Airbnb, who gives you the rules on how to use that space? The owner. Why? It's not because the owner doesn't want to constrict you. The owner wants you to enjoy that place to the fullest. And so who is our owner? Jesus owns our bodies. Why does he give us these rules and lifestyle, the patterns that we have to follow? It's because he wants to enjoy, allow us to enjoy our bodies to the fullest, to the God-given potential. Our life here on earth is just this much, right? Remember this? Our eternal life is this. He wants to prepare us for this, to live our lives to the fullest potential that God has given us and made us to be. Amen? It's not about do's and don'ts. It's not about being party poopers. It's about giving us these patterns of life that we are to follow so that we can live out our fullest potential, to enjoy our bodies correctly and not push the wrong buttons and go, and go into calamity, right? So that was chapter five and six. Whew. All right, see why we're not gonna review these things <laughs> in two weeks. All right, chapter seven. Uh, it, I entitled it Greener, the Grass is Greener? Question mark. But let's start off with a video. Um... So right that it's worth it. And he was right about the Ford Flex too. It's a great family car. Got plenty of room for the kids, gear, and plenty of pickup for me. I got the Weekender package. A few more bells and whistles than Brad's, but Brad doesn't need to know that. <gasps> Daddy! <sighs> Sweetie, I've been waiting for you to... like us too. Yeah. Remember Loving Fence? Yeah. Just go say hi. Yeah. Look, I got this, buddy. Yeah. Hey, you must be Roger. Nope. If Jesus is the center and foundation and Lord of our lives, if he resides in us through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, and we are all redeemed, righteous, and holy, no matter who we are, or who we are, what we deserve, or how much we do, there's nothing we can actually do to increase that type of status, right? That declaration. Holy, redempt. You can't be more holier. You can't be more redempt, <laughs> right? You can't be like more uh, saved, right? In Christ, I, my argument is in this central place that you are in Christ, you are the greenest that you can ever be. There's no such thing as greener, all right? Some of you may know the line, holier than thou. 
And for the Corinthians, throughout this, like our journey together, you notice that uh, it's always about the Corinthians trying to get ahead of each other, right? Holier than thou, holier than thou, holier than the other person. Why is that? Well, it's, because, it's not because they want to be pious and get closer to God. No. Back then, it's a little bit different. When you're more spiritual, when you appear more spiritual, that actually is good brownie points for your career. That you could get ahead in life, all right? So it's more actually associated with us. When we try to bring it up to the contemporary world, we're just trying to, it's almost like trying to build up our brownie points to get ahead, to increase our status. You know, maybe uh, like uh, earn another degree or something like that, just to compose more status. So today, I'm not sure if we Christians actually compete against one another on who is more holy than the other person. Sometimes I wonder, it's, that's pretty a good practice back then, though, don't you think? Like, uh, you know, sometimes like, if you don't have that competition, you know, lethargy sets in. But that's for another story. That I'm not going to talk about that one. So, but we don't have that competition. So what, but what I do see is status competition. So therefore, however, I do know that, that uh, if it's not holiness that is status, I do know that deep down for all of us, we are tempted to look at our neighbor's yard, right? We are tempted to see other people, our peers especially. I get this a lot. I'm like, oh, like, I wish I was there, not here. Like, look at all my peers. They're, they're all on this level and only on this level, right? Like, uh, as a family now, I'm a father. Like, come on, personally, I wish that my child would pass her swimming classes at first try rather than going on a third try. And the only reason why she passed was because her teacher felt sorry for her. <laughs> right? You know? You know, those type of things. I wish that I wish that I had bigger pecs. I was telling her Rosanna this morning, right? Like I wish I had bigger pecs, right? I wish I had a bigger body. I wish I was a baller, not a, you know, you know the song. Okay, some people actually know the song. So, you know, those type of things. And, and so to sum up the central point this morning, then again, in Christ, we tend to look at uh, uh wow, it's greener on the other side. In Christ though. I argue for today, and I hope that as we journey through this chapter, Paul convinces us today that we are the greenest that we could ever be. We don't need to pursue status. Having Christ in our lives far outweighs every status that we can know of. Okay, let's move on. So in this chapter, Paul has an interesting way of presenting this. Um, I'll map it here. Now this chapter is in response to a Corinthian letter that was written by the church to him about their concerns. And hence, he begins with this saying, okay? He starts off with this. If you have your Bibles, go with chapter, go to 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Turn to chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verse one. Because this is a response to a letter. And we know this because he says this. Verse four, now for the matters you wrote. You got that? Now for the matters you wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what the Corinthians said. That's what the Corinthians said. Paul uses the now for the, now to the, now, now, to not only introduce a section of, dis section of discussion, but also to use it to connect sections together. What do I mean by that? Well, to show to the reader that these sections with the now in the front are related and treated interdependently. They're supposed to be treated in the same context. Now that's a key note to know, because if you looked at through this chapter, if any of you have already read it, you notice that there's a lot of nows. It starts with a now, right, for each section. So we've got to connect these. Why is that important? Well, guess what? This chapter is famous for what? 
Anybody know? This chapter is always famous to preach on the topic of divorce. However, through their journey to this morning, I hope that I would convince you that it's actually more than just that, all right? Because of the nows, all right? Now that's, okay, so here, first, we see this. Now for the matters you wrote about it. About. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is about married couples, right? It's about husband and wife because, you know, as you go down this section, it talks about husband and wife. And this topic, this section, is, it, Paul addresses is that these, the man and the woman, the husband and wife, doesn't want to have sex together. You got that? Corinthians are saying, I don't want to have sex with, the, with, the, with my wife or my husband. Well, Paul says, no, they should have each other. In other words, they should have sex with each other since they are married. They can, they can mutually agree temporarily to take a short break from sex for prayer and fasting and retreats, but really they should not withhold sex from one another. Why? Like chapter 5 and 6, we notice that they were tempted. If they kept on withholding sex from each other, what did they end up doing? They, the, the, they would sneak out and the men would sleep with prostitutes to just release their frustrations, I guess, sexual frustrations. Some of them went and they couldn't afford a, a female prostitutes, what they did do? They bought male prostitutes and male boys to sleep with, right? So Paul knew that. Paul knew that because of their withholding sex from each other, they were actually not being more spiritual or anything because really they just sneak out and do it somewhere else. So Paul says, don't do that. Have one another so that you will not be tempted Right? So they could, but why did they want to withhold sex then? Why did they want to withhold sex from each other? Why did they, what was their motivation? Hold that thought. If you have a piece of paper, write it out. Why did they not want to have sex with each other? Let's go to the next now. Next slide. Chapter 7, verse 8. Now, another now, to the unmarried and widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. This is about widows, people who are now single because their spouse died. Paul says it's good to stay unmarried, which means these widows, what does it mean then? They really want to get married, right? If, they, if, he, if he said that, right? He goes, now they unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried. Why would he say that? It's because the widows wrote to, them and wrote to him and said, I really, really, really want to get married, right? Why? Why would they desire marriage so that Paul would say this? To stay, it is better to stay unmarried. But if you can't control your sexual desires, get married. What did these widows see marriage that Paul would say, look, you don't have to, but if you need to, for sexual reasons, go for it. What was it that they wanted that marriage brought to them? Again, take a sheet of paper, <laughs> write that down. Note, why do they want to get married so badly? So first one, why did they want to withhold sex so badly? And second, why do they want to get married so badly? You follow so far? Next now. Now this one's a little tricky because it's a little hidden. Because uh, the now in the Greek is d. <laughs> d and an e, right? And unfortunately, some translations like ours, the NIV, doesn't show the now. But ESV, maybe NASV, they show the now. So I'll just insert it here. Chapter 7, verse 10. Now, to the married, I give this command. You know, this is to the married couples. A wife must not separate from her husband. 
to this one is about Paul saying that married couples should not divorce. Okay? For what reason, though? Why? Why would the couples want to divorce in relation to the other now sections? And this is where we have to connect back to the other nows. Recall what we just discussed about married couples in verse 1. All right? What it was about? It was about couples not wanting to have sex with one another. They wanted to refrain from each other of doing something that they're supposed to do in their marital duty. We are not sure what that something is that motivates them to divorce, but we do know that there has to be something that involves with them not have, wanting to have sex. So let's go to chapter 7, verse 3 to 5. You know the segment right after um, verse 1? Let's go on to that one. It says here, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex in a marriage is a marital duty. Remember that. Sex in a marriage is a marital duty. Why? The husband belongs to the wife, and the wife belongs to the husband. What nullifies that marital duty? That sex. What nullifies that marital duty? Divorce. You follow? So why did they want to divorce? To, re to, be nul to nullify the marital duty of sex. So it's not about divorce per se. It's really about what is motivating them to divorce and not have sex with each other, i.e. fulfill their marital duty. Let it sink in. Because Paul is saying, don't divorce for the sake of withholding your marital duties of having sex with one another. You should have sex together. It's OK. It's your marital duty. Don't separate for the reason that we'll be discussing shortly, because we don't know yet what that is, why they want to uh, not have sex. So just a side note, I come from a, a reading that a lot of times I hear using, when chapter 7 is used, chapter 7 is usually used to bop women over the head to not divorce their husbands. Even though their husbands are abusive, exploitive, uh, tend to be violent, and, or even just neglect. I see churches, church leaders, bop women over the head with this. I even seen my friend, who she actually uh, shared with me, that when she divorced her husband because of violence, that her husband was hostile, abusive, that church took her and told her that you must repent in front of the whole entire congregation. No, that's not what it's about here in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is about the reason why people divorce, not to prevent divorce from happening in all cases, all right, as we have seen here. So question is, when we're writing this outline, is this, what is the motivator? What motivated Corinthians to withhold sex from each other? What motivated Corinthians to wanting to get married? And what motivated Corinthians to divorce in order to withhold sex from each other? Well, before we go to that, let's move on to the next now. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. Are you guys following this okay? Yeah, everything's okay? I'm not going too fast? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. To the rest I say, now. To the rest I say. Sorry, I forgot that now. It's in there. It's a duh. Okay, now to the rest I say this. I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. This one is about couples who were unbelievers initially, and then one of the spouses became a believer. Paul says, just because they are unbelievers, you should not separate from them. Keep the peace, live as believers, because who knows? God may, may move your spouse to believe. We don't know. But don't divorce them. Now, if they separate from you because they just see this whole Christianity as nonsense, foolishness, let them go for your sake. But live as believers and keep the peace for your sake, for the gospel's sake, and for the children's sake. That's what he says later on. So the important question is this. What motivated these believing spouses, these believing ones, what motivated them to want to divorce their unbelieving ones? What was the motivation? Another thing to add to your sheet of paper, right? To another now. What is motivating these unbelieving spouses to divorce their unbelieving spouses? Again, that question. The final now. It is found in verse 25. Now about virgins. How many nows have we done already, <laughs> right? You get it, how this now is important? Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Again, we are now talking about singles. But unlike widows, Paul is addressing their desire to be married. The singles want to get married. Why are they so motivated to be married? Just like the widows. What is it that is in marriage that they see they could gain if they were to get married? You follow? So the question is, I'll summarize it here. What did the Corinthians wanted that they were willing to not have sex with their spouses, to eagerly get remarried, willing to divorce their spouse, believing or unbelieving, and again, eagerly to get married again for the virgins. Well, what section are we left with if you're, if you're actually following along in your Bibles? What section are we left with? It starts with, nevertheless, and it's about circumcision, slavery. Yeah, circumcision and slavery. What in the world has that got to do with this whole thing? Because this passage is what? If you see it on your Bibles, where is it located? Dead in the middle. Right in the middle of this whole thing. So what was Paul doing then? Well, let's go read this verse. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation that they were in when God called them. I, I were you a slave? Were you, oh no, sorry. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when, God, when called is Christ's slave. You were brought, bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Remain. That is what is being repeated here. You notice? Remain in the situation 
that God has called you. Each person should remain or live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. And so we have a little chiasm, don't you think? A little sandwich here. We begin with a remain, we end with a remain, and then right in the middle is another remain, right? So this section is very important for the entire chapter to provide us with some context. And so what is being mentioned here? Circumcision, slave, and free. Circumcision, hmm, something that we don't practice here, I don't think. Just look down, see what you got. Okay, what was, sorry, what was the purpose of circumcision? It was to be holy, is a marker. It was an identity marker for the Jewish people to know that they are separated for the purpose of God. You follow? Separated for the purpose of God, called holiness, right? What does Paul say about circumcision then? Well, that purpose is nullified. It's no longer needed. You don't need circumcision or any other marker, status marker, symbol, to be declared holy. All you need is the seal of Jesus which is you believe. The Holy Spirit is your seal. So Paul says, circumcision or not, it doesn't really matter. But this, this is key because circumcision, why, are they so, why, are the, why is he bringing that uh, example? It's because they, the Corinthians, want to be holier, right? They wanted that holier status, okay? Now for slavery. Slavery, like uh, he's talking to the slaves now, He's not about for slavery or like, he's about saying that slaves, you are called, you are, you're now Christian. You do not need to yearn freedom as if the freedom is Lord over your life. You follow? Because he says this, if freedom is available to you, literally, take it. But then if it's not available, don't yearn it as if it's Lord over you. That this freedom, because you have freedom in Christ. You don't need another status marker to declare yourself free in Christ. Another status. So there's two markers here. Holiness, freedom. Holiness, freedom. These two markers that these Corinthians wanted to have. But Paul is saying, in Christ, you don't need those things anymore. You're the greenest that you could ever get in Christ. You follow? So, what motivated the Corinthians to A, withhold sex from each other? What motivated the Corinthians to, to the point of B, divorce each other so that they, can, they don't need to fulfill their marital duty of sex? What motivated the Corinthians to want to get married? What motivated the, the Corinthian widows to get married and the virgins to get married? Sum it all up in this, their desire to be holy and to have freedom. Make sense? The status marker of holiness and freedom. So for us, do we yearn status? I admit I do too. I do from time to time. I repent and I come to Jesus and say, oh man, I did it again. Oops, I did it again. <laughs> and somebody nods. All right, and I go, yeah, because like I look at other families and their kids are so well-behaved, right? I look at other families and their kids are like in chemo math or something, kumo, kumo math, or chemo, kumo math, right? Or that's how I treat kumo, it's just chemo. All right, so it's like kumo, or I look at other people with nice photographic uh, families with a backdrop of a house, white fence around, 
all reformed theologians, theologians, you know, like, you know, like, you know, and have a dog and a cat and maybe two kids, right? It's like this perfect picture, perfect status marker of an actual Christian family. Look at, focus on the family. Do you ever, ever see anybody not happy? <laughs> right? They're all perfect, right? Walking, smiling, prancing in the springtime. Like, and then for me, I look at mine and it's like this crying child just asking and begging and like, you know what I mean, right? Do we yearn that greener grass? Yes, so what if we do not like, desire, like maybe we do not have that same yearning, that holiness like, uh, and uh, freedom for our career, right? Holiness doesn't really work that well here in the 21st century. But I do know that we all yearn other things to have status, to have freedom, to be liberated to do whatever we want. And I do know that we do have some inkling in churches these days of uh, some, some markers to be holy, right? How many Bible verses you could memorize? How many, how many Bible studies are you leading? How many ministries are you serving? Correct? We tend to do that. But Paul says, in Christ, and I am so glad he said this. And I think this is one of the biggest truths of the gospel about freedom in Christ. Is that in Christ, you are the greenest that you can ever be. Just live out your greenness, greenliness. Just live it out. That's all. Do you believe it, that you're the greenest that you could ever be? Just live it out. Just live it out to the fullest potential and allow the Holy Spirit to move you to that place. Amen? That is such freedom, such liberating. That's why he said it for the slaves. That's why he said it for the circumcised, non-concircumcised. That's why he said it for all the virgins, the widows, the married couples, the unbelieving couples. That's why he said that. It's that you can find freedom and holiness in Christ. And you're in the greenest that you could ever be. Praise God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Paul, who in this chapter gave us one important truth, that we have freedom in Christ, that we are declared holy, and that we have in Ephesians that all the treasures the heaven can contain are now ours. And we are so grateful of this. And therefore, Lord, as we go out in this place, may you remind us continually that it doesn't matter about our neighbors. We are, because as long as we are in Christ, we have you and we are declared holy and we have all the treasures in the that the heaven contained is ours.